This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kathleen Davis. The end of the year brings a lot of office traditions, holiday parties, year-end bonuses if you're lucky, and often performance reviews. Today's episode is a recording of a LinkedIn audio I did earlier this month with Fast Company senior editor Julia Hurst. We broke down how to take this year-end exercise from tedious to useful. Take a listen. Hi, Julia. Hey, how's it going? Good. So... At many companies, this is the time of year that employees and managers do performance reviews. And obviously, performance reviews were created to serve an essential workplace function to check in, to measure and evaluate performance, suggest areas that need improvement, set goals. And in some cases, the um, performance reviews give the opportunity to suggest a raise or promotion. But like many aspects of white collar work, they can feel like just another tedious bureaucratic task. So we are going to break down how to make them more useful. So we did a poll about if your company does a performance review. Julian? Yeah, I feel like this is sort of what I thought it was going to be, but we were asking folks how many people did a formal review process. I guess it could be at any point of year, but I think often at this time of year, towards the end. And we found that 72% of people who replied on LinkedIn said that they did do a formal review process. I think that's like sort of what I would estimate. 19% said no. 8% said we have informal reviews, which I'm not totally sure what that could be. I think there are a couple of options. And then 1% uh, had some comments. Um, we won't go through all of them, but I think even with this kind of straightforward question, we got a lot of emotion <laughs> about <laughs> performance reviews and how frustrating they can be, especially from the side of the person receiving them. Um, this person, Sam Slay, said annual performance reviews are ineffective, demeaning to staff, and no one likes conducting them. They should be eliminated. So we're definitely going to talk a little bit to that point as we go through this. And also a lot of folks probably on this call, myself included, don't have the <laughs> the ability to say if they should or shouldn't happen on an entire team. But if you're going to do them, how can you make them more productive and constructive and kind of forward-looking and goal-setting so that they are not just a waste of time? Yeah, we got a we we got a lot of performance review hate in the comments of a lot of the polls, which was not surprising because we've covered that. We've covered that people don't like performance reviews, but they can they can be good. They can be good and they can also be bad. So. Yes. <laughs> when we are here to hopefully make them good. So now, I think the biggest thing and the most important thing to talk about in performance reviews is since everyone hates them or a lot of people hate them, what makes a good performance review? Art Markman, longtime Fast Company contributor, wrote an article for us that highlights three elements of a good performance review. He pointed out that when used well, performance reviews are not only are an important part of like your employee growth and personal development, but also the company's growth. Like there's a, you know, there's a reason why we have them. The first step of a good performance review is that it closes the loop. So this assumes that the performance review you're doing is not the first one you've ever done. So it should be the first step in the review process should be to look back at the progress from your last review. One of the biggest pet peeves that people have about reviews is that nothing gets done with what's discussed. It's just like this 
task and then nothing ever happens. So if you identified areas that needed improvement or if you set goals, the first part of your review should be looking back at the progress that was made. And this should be evaluated separately by both the employee and the manager, which leads to the next point that both the employee and the manager should fill out a performance review and they should both identify strengths and weaknesses. So Art pointed out that First, the manager and employee should agree on, you know, this is a, like, seems obvious, but should agree on what the important tasks and goals are for the job. Then the employee should do their self-evaluation first of how the past year has gone uh, related to each of those, you know, responsibilities. And then the manager adds their observations. This way, the manager gets the kind of insights into whether the employee was kind of on the same page with their strengths and weaknesses. Art points out that the most crucial point is to identify both the strengths and the weaknesses because often people are reluctant to point out things that they don't do so well because they have a fear, understandably so, that it'll have a negative impact on their compensation or their like ability to get promoted. But he says, and I think this is like so true and really like resonated with me, who is a you know person that always wants to get A's. I think Julia, you can relate. We've talked about this before. But he says that Getting an A plus on your yearly evaluation does not mean that you did everything perfectly. Instead, you should identify an area for improvement and then spend the year making those improvements. And that the A plus comes when you successfully address a limitation that you identified in the previous year. I want to pause there because I feel like that's probably a controversial thing to say and maybe counterintuitive to some people. Julia, what are your thoughts on this? Because we have definitely talked about the grading and the A's and and how that trips people up. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's a really good point that if you are going to go through this process, it really only makes sense if you're going to kind of look back over the past year and see what that thing was that you identified or things. And that only can happen if you're honest about where you need to improve and where there's potential for improvement. So yes, even though we all want A pluses all the time, it requires sort of that both forward and backward look, I think. Yeah. We use a system at Fast Company that I think it's a a software system that probably a lot of other places use. And it, it uses this like number ranking system and that caused a lot of confusion for a lot of folks, you know, initially when we were first starting to use this system because we all wanted to, everybody wants to get, you know, an A. I think it's like a numbered system where you need to get it's like three out of five or two out of five or something. But it was really like if you're meeting your expectations, you would get what would translate to people as a C because that's like the middle of the, you know, meeting expectations. And then it's like far exceeding. And like nobody, nobody should be far, far exceeding every single thing they do. And like it's humanly impossible. But seeing that and feeling like, no, 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 I have to get the the top of everything. And that's school to to work. Parallels don't always work. So the next one, the third part of a good performance review, according to Art's article, is that good performance reviews include a plan for professional development. So that's another area I think that people get really frustrated about is that it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this exercise and then like nothing's ever going to happen until we do it again a year from now. And a lot of companies and managers kind of skip this part. But Art points out that in order to turn a weakness into a strength, this seem, again, might seem kind of obvious, but it's important to incorporate a plan for professional development within that evaluation process. So once you both agree on a weakness, you then figure out what knowledge and skills you need to improve. 
and you make a plan for how you will address that. So like a mentorship or a class or goals can be part of goal setting. A good plan, as Art pointed out, identifies the right ways to address the gaps in skills or knowledge and a time frame for achieving them. So it's kind of the same when we talk about like setting New Year's resolutions or goals. You can't just say like, I'm going to write a cover story next year. It's like, okay, what steps do you need? You know, do you need a mentorship with another editor? Do you need, you know, what like steps do you need to get there? We did a poll asking what the most important part of a performance review is. And squeaking out in the lead was was exactly that, was addressing strengths and weaknesses with 47%. Goal setting for the next year was 31%. Talking about compensation was surprisingly only 13%. And then checking in with your boss was 9%. I think that's encouraging to decouple the idea of like a performance review is just a means to get a raise. Um, and that was uh, highlighted in Sarah Wagner's comment. She said, I really love when performance, compensation, and career development are separated. It allows people to focus on each important component without muddying them with the others. Performance review is a retroactive review. A career conversation is forward-looking, and compensation is literally a drop-in. And it's a really smart way to look at it, those things, all of those things can take place around this time of year, like around the same time, but but kind of separating them out and thinking of them in different ways, I think is is really helpful. Yeah, I think that's really smart and probably how we should all be thinking about these things. It's kind of like three separate tasks. And, you know, to your point that you were making before, which I think is so smart, like it can be really hard, I think, as an employee to be vulnerable in that way and sort of accurately identify you know, a thing you want to work on or whatever. And so I think separating it definitely makes that process easier. But I think also it really only can happen if the person giving the review and sort of leadership in general has really set the stage properly and made it really clear like what the point of this is. And that if you are having a conversation with your manager, that's like, let's talk about a weakness. It's not because you are not necessarily performing, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is not a performance improvement plan kind of a conversation. Like everybody is going to have those conversations. And the point of it is not to say like, you do not deserve compensation or like you didn't do a good job overall. But it's just to think about like what could be the one thing you really want to work on in terms of your own career development and like how are you going to make a concrete plan to do that in the next year? Yeah, exactly. And to Sarah's point too, it's like when you put them all together, then it does feel that way. Like if if compensation is part of the conversation when you're talking about, you know, weaknesses or areas for growth, then it does feel like, oh, well, you're only getting this much of a raise because of that. And they can be totally, they're really like areas for career development that you can work on, not, as you said, performance improvement plans, like a ding on your, like you're skating on thin ice sort of thing, which is where like, I think probably the grade, the equating it to grades sometimes uh, makes it confusing too. Totally. Yeah. Who wants to get a C if you feel like you've been, you know? (laughs) Yeah. We've been conditioned to like not want to be average. And as I always say, is like as somebody who like put a lot of stock in getting all A's. Like, I feel like I need a gold star and and all A's all the time and everything, but that's not realistic. Julia, you're going to talk about uh, hybrid and remote teams. Yeah, I feel like that's a thing that we need to sort of get into up top here, since I think that is part of this conversation, especially since 2020. So many more teams um, have hybrid or, you know, are fully remote or some combination therein. And I think there's definitely an extra challenge um, to getting performance reviews right 
on both sides, you know, from the direct report and the manager side of things. And this does sort of relate to bias, I think, um, because there's a lot of potential for proximity bias, which we talk about a lot, to be a factor here, right? So if you have a team where half of the people are in every day and you are also a manager who's in and you see all those people and you know that they're working really hard and you run into them and they're talking about what they're working on and all of those things, then it can be very easy to sort of naturally assume those people are working harder than the other people on your team who maybe don't come in ever or come in rarely. Um, But it just might not be that you're seeing all the hard work. Um, And so I think this always comes back to a thing that a theme of many of these conversations, which is how much are you uh, prioritizing like visual time seeing a person or hours that a person is spending at their desk or in front of their computer or whatever, versus how much are you actually prioritizing outcome? And so we obviously believe that it's important to focus on outcome. Like, what are people achieving, however long it takes them to get there? And I think that's one way to really avoid the proximity bias trap. Yeah, a huge bias is proximity bias. And even, like, hours worked, like, how long you're in the office, and, you know, if you leave early or come in late or take vacations or whatever, like, all of those things should not factor into a performance review unless they are actually hurting the person's work output. Totally. And I think remembering that remote and hybrid employees can have a positive impact on culture, too, assuming that's an important value for you as a manager, which I believe it should be. (laughs) Everybody has contributions to make and making sure that you are recognizing that they don't always take one form of being physically present in an office. I wanted to mention briefly an op-ed that we ran in Fast Company a while back, which was from an HR expert called David Murray. And he's making the case for really just relying more on data-driven performance reviews. He calls it like an organizational network analysis. But basically, it's this idea, this is how he puts it, every person at your company is asked who they like to go to for help and advice, who they see as an outstanding contributor, who they have concerns about and why. In this way, any person at your company can review anyone else briefly, and that review can be positive or negative. So it's both a data-driven and kind of a 360 approach in order to make sure that you're really basing these things, not just on like the bias of one manager potentially, but it's more of a holistic and data-driven experience. Yeah, I did want to sort of also talk a little bit about kind of the (laughs) challenges of doing it from the direct report side of things. I don't love the term direct report, but (laughs) I think that's the best term to use here. Like employees, Uh, yes. Employee, the person who is receiving the performance review. You know, we've talked a little bit about it from kind of the manager side, but I think all of us are likely going to have performance reviews too. And we wanted to talk just a little bit about kind of general tips for getting the most out of the process as possible. There is a piece that we ran a while ago from Ronnie Zahavi. He works for the HR platform HiBob, and he talks a lot about kind of the way you go into the performance review and how you can sort of have a productive conversation. So he suggests basically not going in with kind of a list of grievances. That means keeping the focus on yourself, obviously, not gossiping about other people, even though that can be easy to fall into sometimes when you're talking about like challenges. And remember to keep the focus sort of on your future career development, and that should be something hopefully, that your manager really wants to help you with. That is the ideal relationship. And coming in with some ideas about concrete things that you want to prioritize in the upcoming year or years and presenting them is a way that you can both look good but also just have a more productive conversation overall. Yeah. And you're right. It can be really hard to, like, if you know that you had certain goals and you didn't meet them and they were contingent, you know, on other departments or things like that, it can be really difficult to not be like, well, it was not my fault. It was this, you know, but it doesn't make you look any better. Probably they're aware of those shortcomings in other parts and try to spin it forward what you can do in the in the future. The biggest thing that everybody 
points too we've kind of addressed is that it feels tedious and like a waste of time or just an exercise that doesn't kind of go anywhere. If you hit those points that we've talked about all already, hopefully that helps resolve that. But bias is the kind of elephant in the room of the big thing that can go wrong in a performance review. And the first thing that I think about when I think about bias in performance reviews is a 2014 Fast Company article that went really viral. And it was about a study that found that there was one word that men never saw in their performance reviews, but women saw in the performance reviews all the time. And that word was abrasive, which is a very loaded gendered term. And the article was so popular because it confirmed what so many people already felt. And unfortunately, it hasn't changed that much in the last decade. Kieran Snyder was the CEO and co-founder of Texaco who conducted that study. And she did another study in 2022 that analyzed 25,000 performance reviews from 250 companies. And uh, she found that, yeah, not a lot has changed. She organized that data by gender, race, and age. And she found that women get 22% more personality feedback than men. Black and Latinx people receive two over two times more feedback that is not actually actionable than white and Asian people do. People over 40 are three times more likely to be scri- described as unselfish than younger workers. So there's a a bias towards younger workers. And she pointed to a new single problematic word uh, this time is ambitious. 63% of men were described as ambitious, but only 17% of women. 58% of people over 40 see ambitious in their feedback compared to only 23% over 40. So under 40, younger people are seen more ambitious than older people. And there was a racial bias in there as well. Related to those, and this is uh, what we were getting at a little bit with proximity bias, is that Black workers and women and people over 40 report spending much more time working remotely than their colleagues, uh, which is a you know example of proximity bias. And those uh, the people who work remotely more often are also the least likely to be described as ambitious. So that just shows the, you know, out of sight, out of mind thing. That's a lot of stats, I know, but, you know, it's it's good to kind of have those things in mind when, you know, when you're doing your own, perf- when you're, if you're a manager, when you're doing performance reviews, are you, you know, bringing bias on, um, on people who are not there or bias uh, that you have against, you know, age or, or any of those other things. Bias can be really hard to reduce. There are several tools that like actually block biased language in performance reviews. Those tools can kind of help managers like be aware of the language they're using, which can hopefully help start them kind of like questioning their bias, but it doesn't really fix the issue. One way for employees to kind of take control if they feel their direct manager might have some bias in the reviews is what we talked about is a is asking for a 360 review where they get feedback from not only their manager, but others who interact with them regularly. So their peers, their direct reports, their manager's manager. Commonly with a 360 review, managers will receive all of that feedback and then kind of analyze it and look for like patterns, both positive and negative, and like give the report to share to the employee. But it can be a step that helps in in seeing what others think so you're not kind of beholden to one particular person. Um, but yeah, there's bias is, is a big one in performance reviews. Is there anything I, I didn't mention that you think can can help with bias in performance reviews? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right that it's a tricky thing, right? There's not going to be one singular solution to eliminating bias, unfortunately, or I think we'd probably be better at doing it. But I do think that it sort of ultimately comes down to, first of all, managers understanding that it is a big responsibility to give fair performance review, no matter sort of what your relationship is with your report. Um, And then I think that really comes down to leaders sort of setting the stage and like setting expectations for what performance reviews should be. I mean, I think a lot of middle managers don't receive training about how to do these. There isn't like a single way to do a performance review that everyone has agreed on, of course. And so I think it really comes down to like how much of a commitment does a company want to make to making this process fair and equitable and sort of equipping middle managers with the tools that they need in order to do it in a fair way. And part of that process is also giving middle managers the time and space to prepare for these, you know, so they're not just like a casual, like fly by the seat of your pants, we'll figure it out as we're talking kind of thing. I think there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong if it's treated that way. Yeah. And giving them the tools that they need in order to look critically at where they may have some weaknesses in their own managerial practices and to ensure that they're doing the job that needs to be done. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully, too, if you're following some of the processes that we've talked about and evaluating actual results, like where your goals to do, again, like this many, write this many articles a year and you did it, then, you know, hopefully that takes out your personal feelings about the person's personality or... Focusing on data versus we don't need to be applying descriptors necessarily (laughs) to people on our team. Adjectives for someone's personality don't really have a, a place in a performance review. We did a poll asking if you think performance reviews are fair and it was pretty evenly split. 47% of people said, no, they're inherently biased, which I think is where some of the bad feelings towards performance reviews come from. And probably, you know, people have experienced some of those things that we talked about. 40% said yes, when they are based on facts. So again, kind of what we're talking about, if it's just data driven. And 13% uh, said depends. Sarah Bristol put a comment that she, she says, I know some companies that require a certain number of employees per ranking. Those same companies also give you a low score for doing your basic work. So you have to pick up a, extra, a ton of extra projects and work just to uh, rank meets expectations. Feels toxic to me. Yes, it feels super toxic. I have heard of that. Hopefully that's a practice that is not being used very much. But yeah, it's a very old school where it's like a bell curve. Like you have to have some people that are ranked low and you have to have some people that are in the middle and you have to have some people that are ranked high. And that just seems like an excuse for eliminating people's positions. Yeah, that's actually, I was going to talk about that a little bit. Next, we ran an excerpt from a writer named Benham Tabrizi, who talks about why a lot of companies are moving away from a stacked ranking and like a traditional performance review that you get once a year or twice a year approach. And I think a lot of it has to do with that specific model and the danger of if you're kind of pitting employees against each other, what that means for like bigger company-wide goals of kind of communication and feedback. Like why would you necessarily want to help your coworkers if you understand that there are only a few people who can get this certain thing? And so moving away from that is something that a lot of companies are considering. Obviously, there are still plenty of companies that do this very traditional thing where you know, only certain employees get this, like, exceeds expectations designation. But for those that are moving away from it, a lot of them are moving towards a process of kind of more continual, informal feedback, which seems obvious, and yet I guess it is not at a lot of places. 
But I think, you know, if you really do believe that nothing that happens in a performance review should be a surprise, right? This is not like a pop quiz where you find out you're excelling or you're failing. Then you need to be having those regular check-ins with your manager. You need to be having those conversations regularly, like where are there areas for improvement? What's going well? What's not going well? And if you have those on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, then when you actually sit down for a more formal process, if that's something your company does, it really shouldn't be like a great surprise. You should sort of go into that conversation knowing how you're doing overall, knowing what you want to focus on, and knowing what your goals are for the year ahead. I think that kind of the best practice is both. Like, I'm actually pro-performance review. I will say that before Fast Company put in place our, like, formal review process, I just made up my own, like, six-month or annual review process with my direct reports, for lack of a better phrase. But I also have weekly check-ins because it just feels like, yes, you should be having a, a constant conversation. You're so right. Like, it's not a pop quiz, but you should have those, like, bigger kind of moments once or twice a year to, like, I really think, like, talk about goals and and kind of look look forward and look back, you know, as we've been talking about. But, um, yeah, the stacked ranking is just awful. <laughs> Sounds horrible. Yeah, I, I do think that there is a risk if you only have casual conversations to not sort of having those big career development and goal setting. And I think you also just want to make sure that it feels like a two-way conversation because you don't want to find out if you're a manager that your direct report has been frustrated for months and feels like they haven't had a chance to actually bring up this like larger thing that they want to be working on or hoping to move towards or whatever because all of your conversations are just very small and like, you know, putting out the weekly fires that might happen, you know. So making space for bigger conversations is good, but I do agree that if that can happen in a decoupled way from a backwards look or a compensation conversation, that's like really ideal. I think we were very uh, productive today <laughs> with our with our conversation. Was there anything we didn't touch on that we should? I think that's about it. Yeah. Well, see everybody in 2024. Thanks, Julia. Thanks so much. And that's all for this episode and for this season. We'll be back in the new year with all new episodes. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to not miss a single episode. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu with editing by Nicholas Torres. 